0: And so you look across the world, Europe has the same demographic problem. China has the demographic problem. Japan has it in spades, but none of those countries have immigration as a solution. So I, I am very bullish on America. And I also think that the, the opportunities for jobs throughout the manufacturing cycle are gonna be strong here.
1: Welcome back everyone to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization show. The home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders
2: about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf
1: and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of Geeks, Geezers, Googleization, a show from the People Forward Network. I'm Ira Wolf. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation.
3: And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We are the voice of the most important crucial conversations that are confronting business leaders and people today. Our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the impact and convergence of business, technology, and people.
1: Here we are on the 12th day of the new year 2023, and for anyone who was expecting a magical economic, political, and societal reset when the ball dropped and the fireworks exploded just a few days ago, it's pretty clear it ain't gonna happen. Why we're here, why we exist, why Jason and I do these shows is to help you make sense of what is without a doubt a very fuzzy, finicky, confusing, and never normal time. So to help us figure this all out, we are very pleased to welcome back three of our favorite business experts. First, we've got Dick Bouvet, and let me welcome him back onto the stage. There we go. Happy New Year, guys. So Happy New Year, back, everyone. So we've got Dick Bouvet, uh, he's becoming a pretty familiar face these days, the Googleization Nation members, and we are so fortunate for him to take some time out and be back with us again. He's a frequent visitor to many of the top business shows, uh, such as uh, CNBC, uh, Bloomberg, racking up over 1,500 interviews. And if you've missed Dick on TV, you might have caught his name somewhere in one of those 10,000 print interviews. Dick's the f- chief financial strategist at Odeon Capital Group a highly sought after thought leader for investors, the media, and even the White House. Uh, Next, on the lower right, we've got Matt Van Alstein, uh, his co-founder and managing partner of Odeon Capital Group, a leading Wall Street executive. Matt and Dick team up each week on the podcast Odeon Capital Conversations, known for their well-informed outlook and views. Odeon Capital Conversations podcast, which I highly recommend, is now a top ranked Apple podcast in the business news category in the U.S., Canada, Europe and Asia. And rounding out our group today is the host and moderator of Odeon Capital Conversations. He's our third guest, Uh, our good friend, John Aiden Byrne. John's an award winning journalist, multimedia editor. And also hosted the popular podcast Dig Life Deep, now ranked in the top 1.5% of all podcasts. And he wrote what is now a famous business cover about uh, our business story about Bernie Madoff and his investment firm back in Bernie's heyday. Uh, We're going to turn the tables on John today and dig a little deeper in just a few minutes and explore how that might be playing out again with the recent FTX crypto fiasco. And by the way, if you haven't been listening to Dig Life Deep, I hope you'll check it out because each week I join John uh, for what's become a really popular segment called Future Shock 2.0. So let's get started, gentlemen. I know we got a lot of people waiting to hear, get some advice and try to figure out what's going on. So Dick, uh, first question goes to you. You might at one time have seen the video where a group of people are talking and suddenly this gorilla shows up and walks amongst those people, but no one notices, including the people watching the video. Um, it seems we have a gorilla in the room. Um, we may have a family of gorillas walking amongst us, and, but we tend to ignore them and that the gorilla is demographics. On a recent podcast, uh, I believe it was December twentieth, uh, on the Odian Capital Conversations, you—I'm sh- a—I'm a demographic uh, stat freak. geek. Uh, many of you know that. I've followed that for the last twenty-five or thirty years. Uh, you shared a stat that freaked me out, which is tough to do these days. So. According to the United Nations, and this is your quote, in 2050, there, were, there will be more people in Nigeria than there will be in England, France, Spain, Germany, and Italy all put together. That's 400 million people in Nigeria alone. We don't often think about that. We worry about China and, and uh, India, but we don't think about Africa. So question to you is, because this was a real big point that you made, why should we care? And wouldn't that be good for us if there's 400 more people in Nigeria to consume our goods and services? As as I say, I
2: think the problem is that basically uh, in the uh, North Atlantic countries, also in uh, places like Japan and China, uh, the population is is basically reaching a point where it's not uh, replacing itself. In other words, again, if you would take the United Nations study, you would see that most of these European nations that, that you just mentioned are, are going to show flat to down populations. And if you take a look at the United States, uh, I think by the year 2030, deaths will be higher than births, which means that immigration is absolutely necessary you know, for this country to grow its population. On the other hand, if you go to Africa, not only is Nigeria explosive in terms of uh, its population growth, but Ethiopia, which is close to next door, is in a similar situation. Uh, and if it hadn't, uh, if Eritrea and the Tigray province hadn't been breaking away from Ethiopia, they would be up there, pretty close to Nigeria in terms of population. If you go down to the Congo, uh, you find that uh, you know the births per woman just a couple of decades ago when nine to one, it's down to five to one now, but compare that uh, to the United States where it's 1.6 to one. So, so so the issue very simply is the countries that have money are not growing their populations. The countries that have a number of economic and political problems are growing their populations. So why should we think that the people who are in those countries where there is a difficulty in, in, in surviving won't move to the countries that have the money to support them, just a a lack of willingness to see these people move in. And I think it's gonna create a conflict. I think the conflict is gonna be significant. Uh, And and just one last note, you know, by 2050, Egypt will have more people than Russia. Will the people in Egypt stay there or will they move to Russia? So I, I think we're talking about the likelihood of population movement that that population movement is going to be destabilizing for many of the European governments and certainly in the United States at the present time it's creating a a lot of political furor.
1: So does that create an opportunity for us? Uh, Again, I mean that means there's also a lot more consumers uh, out there um, but you know when we look at our our, our current labor uh, shortage and we're going to talk a little bit about that whether we, we there there are a number of deniers there but what the impact of that is we we still have a terrible immig- we have no immigration policy at the moment or or if we do it's somewhat dysfunctional of of where you know d- does that create an opportunity for us uh in the future or you know where what's the balance between threat and opportunity
2: well i think you know it would create an opportunity if the united states was a a nation uh similar to what it was uh 40 50 60 years ago when it was producing in other words uh, roughly uh, you know at the end of world war II, one out of every three workers in the united states were involved in production and if you add to that the uh, people who were moving that production you know delivering it and, and into the economy in the united states and worldwide one out of every two people in the united states were producing and moving products uh, you know globally uh, that's down to one out of every five at the present time. And the people in production are one out of every 12. So, so the net effect is, you know, we, we are not in the position, in my view, to take advantage of the opportunity to, uh, if you will, uh, sell products to, to these rapidly growing African nations. China, on the other hand, has uh, loaned money to virtually all of them. Uh, and it has, you know, huge, huge amounts of uh, debt outstanding to places like Kenya, uh, Djibouti, which is, is is a little country which has a big impact on the uh, on the Gulf, uh, and and you know, uh, you know, th- th- throughout throughout uh, Africa, the Chinese have, you know, put money in, have used this Belt and Road system so that they put factories in. They're exporting their own population to certain of these countries to run those factories. So you know we're not jumping on this opportunity, Uh, we're we're still in a position of trying to determine whether we want to be a a consumption, you know, leader in the world, or whether we're going to go back to be a production leader, which is what they what we absolutely must do. And
1: just this morning, and and I, I wish I had had more time to go through it, there was just a new report released by the Aspen institute and it talked about the our economic future in an era of uncertainty i don't believe that's the exact title but you get it and i quickly flipped open and they talked a lot about what you just shared uh in that business i wasn't familiar with this term before but they called it business dynamism uh and you know the fact is that the us just isn't as robust as it was uh wasn't in that position that we have lower uh, productivity uh, that we've had. Uh, we certainly have, we're, we're being impacted by these demographic changes and labor shortages. Uh, so there, there's a lot of moving levers that we have to solve this, which brings us, and we want to bring this back to uh, what the media has been calling, you know, table conversations, um, you know, breakfast conversations. And those are are the things that are, are keeping many of our, uh, you know, the U.S., well, people around the world, but we're talking mostly in the U.S. here, men and women awake at night. Jobs, you know, what's the future of jobs, wages, uh, interest rates, recession. So um, I'm going to throw this out to you, uh, Matt, to to start, and then we'll bring it back to Dick. And, and then also I uh, want to hear what John has to say, because, John, you talk to you a lot of people and you have also have a lot of experience in this area as well. So, Matt, I mean... W- there's a lot there. We we got job we we got jobs. We got wage growth, you know, which seems to be slowing a little bit, but it's still it's not keeping up. We've got we're unsure of where interest rates are headed. What what's your take on where we are
0: now and where we're headed? Well, it's it's a interesting time to be alive, like always. Um, you know, never never before to my knowledge has the Federal Reserve increased interest rates to the extent they've done it without tripping a recession. Furthermore, you've never seen, you know, this morning you had the invil- uh, inverted yield curve. I believe it's close to 100 basis points right now. You, you've, I think only once in history have you seen an inverted yield curve without a recession the following 18 to 24 months. But when you get to 100 basis points, which is 1%, which is basically what you're saying is I would rather um, lend for short term than long term because I think the, I think there's going to be a recession. That's what the Treasury market is pricing in, is there's a big recession coming. And usually when the Treasury market prices that in, it usually happens. And then you go and you listen to the Federal Reserve board members go out and speak, and there's hardly one of them that's not trying to be more hawkish than the next one, which is, we're going to do this until we've killed inflation. And the only way they can kill inflation is by killing demand. And the only way they can kill demand is by killing the job market. So. What you have everyone on all cylinders telling you is a recession is coming. The market is telling you that. The Federal Reserve is telling you they're trying to cause one. They're trying to cause a job recession. As much as there's, you know, tacit speak to softest landings and maybe we'll get this one right and hopefully we won't be out there. And the politicians are out there being pretty um, optimistic that, you know, unemployment at three and a half percent is that's nothing to laugh at. I mean, that's a really, really healthy economy. And at the same time, you have the Fed talking about killing it. So it's really interesting because, you know, the old, the old traditional definition of a recession is when your neighbor loses a job and when it's depression, it's when you lose your job. But no one's losing their jobs right now. And not only is no one losing their jobs, but I don't know if anyone's been to a restaurant lately. It's hard to get a seat. Uh, go go to the airport. The lines are insane. Go to Disneyland. You can't get in unless you're willing to spend a 1000 bucks for a family of four. Go to the movies. It's sold out. Go anywhere. It, it's 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 bonkers out there. It is, it is people are spending like there's no tomorrow and the interest rate increases as well while it's clearly dampening um, mortgage refinancing and new home sales it hasn't really dropped home prices there's not a place in our economy where you could look to and say oh clearly there is weakness there but it's coming it's priced in the policymakers are telling you to expect it the 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 market is telling you to expect it, that we're on the verge of a big recession. So, is this the first time in history that it doesn't happen? Maybe, maybe we get lucky. Maybe they do have the softest landing. But if you are a student of history, everything's telling you to get ready for a big recession, batten down the hatches, and be be prepared.
1: That we are living in these never normal times, and and just as you said, Matt, you know, is this the first time in history that that happens? And you know, so you know. Even going back through recessions, and we've talked about this before, uh, there's been 12 recessions since 1945, and in, in in all of them, the lowest unemployment rate was six percent. But what happened? It seems like we're defying that that trend, that actually that movement right now. Dick, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, we're, you know, we 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 just had some of the numbers come out. where we still have low unemployment. The the jolts rate that the people are quitting a little less than they did. Uh, Last year, but it's still over four million. We're still a million and a half more people quit every month than they did, um, you know, prior to the pandemic. Uh, where where do you see things heading?
2: Well, I mean, I obviously agree with Matt that uh, you know we are headed for a recession. But you know, I have been trying very hard over the last year to figure out how to position oneself in the economy as we go to and through uh, what might be a recession, and I've, I've come to the conclusion that you know, we are moving from an old cycle, the old cycle being dominated by consumption and, uh, you know, if you will, this high-tech use of of, uh, consumption, uh, but... We're moving toward a, a, a new economy which is going to be based, I believe, on production you know manufacturing on you know natural resources on you know uh, defense uh, on food in other words i th- I think we're moving away from worrying about whether Apple is going to make the best you know uh, earphones ever known to mankind and thinking about how do we get gas at a reasonable price in our cars? How do we get heating uh, in our home at, at a reasonable price? How do we get, you know, uh, the ability to, to sell products worldwide? And, and I think the stock market has, has picked up on this issue also, because if you noticed in 2022, uh, defense stocks actually were up. Uh, they weren't beating the market, they were up, they were not down. Uh, The same is true of energy stocks and some of the natural resource plays. Manufacturing was not up as much uh, as as, uh, manufacturing was down. It was not down as much as the market. But if you compare new manufacturing to what I'll call these consumer tech stocks, the consumer tech stocks were down double the decline that occurred in manufacturing. So I think You know, what what I prefer to do is is kind of concentrate on where we're going. And I'm absolutely convinced that that's the direction we're going in. Manufacturing, natural resources, food, energy, uh, you know, defense. Uh, And and I think the banks, you know, will fund that. So I think there, there are real opportunities developing in the areas we're moving toward. Uh, and I just can't stand listening to another Fed speaker. I just don't want to hear anymore about you know uh, you know what's going to happen uh, you know in, in the recession. Uh, what I want to know about is how do I position myself for the future? And and I think we're we're on the right track. And I think the market is coming to that point of view and that it'll be on the same track. So I think it's it's this is the way we're going to make money. This is the way we're not going to make money. And therefore, start thinking about the way we're going to make money.
3: And, John, I want to loop you in here on, on the heels of that, thinking about in quarter three, we had record corporate profits, right, in the United States. And and so to, to hear that kind of juxtaposed against, you know, it's likely that we're going to hit a recession in 2023, uh, how do we how do we kind of make sense of that, John? In terms of we've got record corporate profits going on against lackluster wage growth, and then forty-year high inflation. What are you seeing and and hearing from additional people as well in regard to what things are looking like for twenty twenty three?
4: Yeah, I I want thanks, Jason. I just want to quickly go back to what um, Dick and Matt had been saying about uh, this pending recession. You know, everybody is talking about a recession coming, and the question is, will it be? a jobful recession. That's a theme that you have spoken about in the past, Ira. I mean, the labor numbers, the number of workers coming into the labor markets are, you know, completely strikingly lower than they were a generation or two ago. Um, and that, again, of course, speaks to this whole demographic crisis, you know, the drop in fertility rates across the globe. Um, so, That's maybe why we just haven't seen the unemployment numbers tick up. But to that question, um, Jason, I mean, it's a striking number, you know, in the non-financial sector, the the record corporate profits, and then there's been this sort of political rhetoric about, um, you know, wage growth not keeping up um, with those kind of numbers. I mean, I think we have to kind of sometimes separate uh, the political rhetoric from the reality, you know, you know on the ground and this is something dick could pick up on um i mean you 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 clearly have to define what um price gouging might be if that's what some of the critics are saying that there's these excess corporate profits um and then and then the other question is of course that that there have been there has been some wage growth and interestingly as a footnote and a side note to all of that is that we're seeing for the first time in a generation or so, a rise in more labor movement activism. Um, so we would see how that plays out over the next year or so. We saw how the nurses in New York City settled in the past 24 hours. Um, and, and again, a lot of this is just one of those byproducts of, of inflation, the social chaos that it reaps. But Dick might be able to address that on the corporate profit side because he's he's done a lot of research on productivity, labor, and inflation, and I, can't, I think that addresses much of that.
2: Well, okay, well, if you, you want me to talk about the profitability issue, it's it's, it's really a complex issue in the sense that uh, if there's been a significant increase in the sale of units, then the fixed cost per unit sold is going down. And therefore, even without uh, price control on the part of the seller of the products, margins for corporations would go up, right? In other words, their margins would expand uh, simply because there's less less fixed cost per, per unit of uh, product sold. At the same point in time, uh, I do think uh, that, the, that there has been some price gouging, you know, in, in multiple industries because, you know, consumers have money, they have jobs, they seem to be spending, I mean, de- de- debt, C- credit card debt rose 16% year over year, uh, you know, in, in, in 2022. Uh, so the consumer is outspending. And, and if you took it, at, you know, non-securitized debt, you know, on the part of the consumer, that's up by 12%. So so the net effect is if the consumer is going to buy everything, corporations get, you know, pricing power. So you have you have two factors here leading to, a you know, increased margins. You have, you know, pricing power on the part of corporations, which they're utilizing to their benefit, and you have the fact that uh, unit sales are increasing, which is dropping uh you know the 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 fixed cost per unit sold, which also leads to margin improvement so i th- I think that the margin improvement I- the issue is is somewhat complex and needs a heck of a lot more study than I just threw out at you right now but 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 I do think that uh I do think in, in the recession there will be less pricing power on the part of uh, com- companies, and, and therefore that, uh, that that will allow inflation to come down and it will hit the
0: margins of corporations. I, I, I just want to p- pipe in on this phrase price gouging. The, the reality is, is price gouging is there is a definition. It's usually taking advantage of temporary dislocations. Usually it's with natural disasters or, or you know, in, in areas where there's temporary shortages due to extreme circumstances that almost, you know, godlike circumstances that create the price gouging. What you have right now is companies making the decision, some somewhat of their own accord, to maximize their profits. And what you're trying to do as a business is maximize the profits. And one reason businesses choose not to go ahead and maximize their profits when they maybe could is because when you increase your cost of goods, you invite competition. And what you have right now because of labor shortages, because of um, supply chain disruptions is companies can raise their prices to maximize their profits without threat that competition is going to come in and undercut them because there's not real replacement opportunity. But that's different than price gouging. This is what drives an economy. A healthy economy allows for competition. A healthy economy rewards companies that create something that creates demand, and then they price the demand where demand meets supply, and that's where you get price. It's it's a pretty basic function of the of the economy, and right now what we have, I would argue, it's largely because of g- government intervention in a free economy, is you have supply shortages and shortages and supply chain shortages, and a government that would step back and let the system work, instead of trying to go product by product and, and impose tariffs or go down to the Three Amigos Convention in Mexico City and talk about how we're gonna you know roll back the NAFTA free trade protections to try to be become more protectionist it's ridiculous and you know one of the things that came out of the ira they call it the inflation reduction act which is absurd because there's nothing about it that has anything to do with inflation except increasing it is you have all these rewards you know one one example that keeps coming up is these rewards if you're an electric car manufacturer and you know everyone can have an opinion about what they think about encouraging electric car manufacturing great your opinion is probably wrong so is mine but the idea is if you look at it they're rewarding certain car manufacturers that have to meet a litany of just inflationary checklists you have to be unionized you have to have prevailing wage unionization it has to be manufactured in the united states you know you, it eliminates like I, I believe tesla is not eligible for any of this stuff so you're not out there saying hey we want to grow manu- auto electric car manufacturing because if you did if that was what you wanted to waste your taxpayer dollars doing, you would waste your taxpayers' dollars being neutral to which electric cars get produced. But they're not being neutral. They're saying we want unionized cars manufactured in the United States for manufactured supplies that are also manufactured in the United States that also are based on raw materials that also come from the United States. It's basically a new fancy form of protectionism, which is actually massively inflationary. So I, I, I think this this phrase price gouging is really more of, it, it's just inflation. There's more demand than there is supply and prices go up, straight up. Not price gouging due to an act of God or some sort of natural disaster type event.
1: You know, yesterday we had the opportunity to uh, interview Gad Levinen, uh chief economist, uh, he used to be with the conference board, now he's with the Burning Glass Institute. And he quoted uh, someone uh, which was totally unexpected the Joker from Batman, uh, in describing where we are and, and Matt, as you were just going through that, that just resonated with me that, we're having a collision of unstoppable force with an immovable object. And so we're left with certain levers we can pull certain things we can do. Uh, and we talked about all, you know, what what the Fed is doing, and they're trying to regulate. One of the levers they have is with interest rates. You know, what are some of the what are some of the things that our listeners can do as as in in business to help, uh, I guess, survive or, or or grow and thrive, which would be ideal when a, an unstoppable force hits an immovable object.
4: Well, I might just quickly come in here and set this up for Dick. But in his some of his most recent research. He was just talking about the um, geopolitical trends and how it's impacting the American the domestic economy on reshoring. I mean, there's been a lot of analysis and studies on this lately that American CEOs are talking about bringing jobs back to America on American soil. And it's going to create, by extension, a lot of investment opportunities.
1: And it seems and and just to comment on that, just deliver it. I mean, it seems like the uh, some the semiconductor bill um, that we had was, was certainly an you know certainly one effort to be able to do that.
2: Well, I, I think that uh, it's it's clear. I, I don't like to be thought of as an isolationist, but uh, you know, I understand and have read all of the economists who argue that uh, the free flow of goods uh, to areas of uh, lowest cost, In producing those goods, you know, is good for the world economy um, and it's good for consumers in every nation. Uh, But, you know, China did not become the second largest economy in the world because it followed that practice, right? And Japan prior to China did not rise from its position nor did Germany, you know, because they followed those particular economic rules. Those countries did the exact opposite, uh, Germany to the lesser degree, lesser degree, but, but, but Japan and China both got their positions in the world because they flouted all of the rules, you know, or that, uh, you know, free movement of goods and free movement of money would argue. And I think that, you know, the United States is is suffering because of it we lost 70,000 factories in the united states according to a, a- a recent study that was published in, in Foreign Affairs magazine, we lost 5 million jobs. We were the number world one steel producer in the world. We're now number 20. We were number one in aluminum. We're now number nine. You know, we uh, have no position of meaningful uh, size in rare earths. We we have uh, lost, you know, any opportunity to become a dominant a factor in the lithium market. China has, has grabbed both of those things. So, you know, my belief is is that you know we, we have no choice but we've got to go back to a kind of an isolationist you know economy in order to allow uh, these businesses to grow in the United States. Now they will ultimately only grow if we can produce products which are lowest cost and highest in utility you know to people around the world. And I think that the job of technology, as I said, is not to come up with, you know, a, a better way of doing consumer uh, uh, consumer tech, but but is to get a ways uh, to make manufacturing in this country effective. But I think I think manufacturing in this country must be protected. I think we must get a very stronger position in lithium and rare earths and rhodium and all of these other things that are necessary for the economy of the future. But it's not going to happen if we uh, adopt the view that uh, you know uh, free flow of goods and free flow of money is beneficial to everyone. Because again, I don't think China ever used free flow of goods or free flow of money To get to the position that they're in right now. I do not believe Japan did that before them and therefore even though the economists in theory might be right, in practice we're just not seeing that in the real world.
3: And Dick, with that, recently I saw some startling statistics on the future of of jobs in the economy and that there's emerging research suggesting by the time we get to 2030 that roughly 85% of the jobs that will be around in 2030 are jobs that don't even exist yet. That that's how rapid the type of of jobs and the type of work is going to be in in the new economy. Have you come across any of that in terms of what are going to be some of those new types of jobs that emerge um, over the next seven years? And then number two with that would be how do we upskill and, and get folks ready for that for the types of skills that they may need in this new economy for those types of jobs
2: well unfortunately i have i do not know what the uh, the jobs of the future are going to be uh, but what i what i am seeing is this ma- massive shift in in the use of workers in the united states at the present time if you 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 know, I, I said a short time ago that you know, uh, you know, at the end of World War II, fifty percent of the workers were involved in in producing and sending goods. Well, today, fifty percent of the workers are slightly under that are involved in healthcare, education, and in um, uh, you know management uh, of companies and, and and financial systems. So, so the net effect is we, we've moved so far away from being. The leader in the creation of these jobs uh, in the future—that—that that, that it, that it's staggering—and—and and that's that's what I'm I'm kind of pointing to. We we've got to redirect the technology in the United States, um, you know, toward you know basically creating you know the ability of of uh, generating products which are worldwide competitive because they're low in price and they're high in utility. And I don't see us doing it. And that's that, you know, I, I, I'm not answering your question, Jason, so I apologize because I don't know the answer to your question. But I am extremely worried that wherever these new jobs show up, you know, they're not going to be here. Because essentially, you know, China is ahead of us in telecommunications. You know, Russia and China are ahead of us in defense technology. And, and essentially, if, if all we're going to do is focus on consumption, and and, and systems, you know, to to lay out money as a result of getting it from the government. You know, we're not going to get to be the producer of those jobs of the future because we have not been the producer of those jobs in the past five years. We've moved more and more to a consumption-driven economy which is hurting us. And, and I apologize, one, one thought to put in your mind. Uh, you know, I recently took a look at, the, you know, the, the US government changed all its statistics in 2002. So they, they gave a, a raft of new information. You know, what I noticed was that, you know, if you took the growth in real GDP from 2002 to 2022, it was 1.9%, 1.9%. If you took the growth in the Federal Reserve balance sheet from 2002 to 2022, it was 11%. It was six times greater. So because we want to consume and we don't want to produce, We are borrowing the money to get the money to consume and the borrowing has created this monster called the Federal Reserve, which is now got, uh, you know, $1.1 trillion in liabilities above their assets and, and, you know, we can't let that continue. So I, again, I apologize. I have not answered your question, but you know, my fear is that we are so sunk into consumerism and borrowing money to make consumerism work, and getting a Federal Reserve to just keep doing the Greenspan put, the Bernanke put, the you know Yellen put, you know the uh, Powell put. You know that we we essentially have lost we have lost direction altogether, and we can't continue to do that.
0: I I, I would counter a little bit of what Dick's saying. I, I love I love when, when I go against it because it makes me feel good because he's usually he's usually right and I usually agree with him. But when when you sit there and say, Oh, Russia and China are have better military technology than us, like come on, what planet are you on? They might be spending a greater share of their GDP as as part Russia, maybe because of the war, but China, you know, we, we have eleven aircraft carriers. They have one. We have 11 that can go at what's called Blue Sea, more than 200 miles from their shore. They have zero. Um, we have a 100% of our submarine fleet is nuclear and silent and goes around the ocean without almost anyone knowing that they're there. They have a diesel fleet, and I think they're working on their first nuclear sub. Like, And, and then put Russia in the mix. They're nowhere close to us. The, what they have is they have one technology that can wipe out the planet Earth, um, You know, the they doomsday bomb. And that's scary because... They could do it, but they don't have actual on-the-ground weaponization that is giving them some sort of advantage over some backwater Eastern European country like Ukraine. They're losing as much as they are winning and they have more territory. They they were supposed to take Kiev in three days, and they're sitting there fighting in the trenches in Eastern Ukraine, basically where they were in 2014. Um, In terms of where the jobs are going to come, well, look, look at what Elon Musk did with Twitter. He showed up. He put out a really nasty memo saying we want, you know, you'd be really committed to our company. Otherwise, go find work elsewhere. And 75 to 80% of his workforce left. And most Twitter users think it's a better product today. And he, you know, he he automatically overnight increased productivity by 5x. Like, there's a lot of slack in the American system that can work. And in terms of reshoring, sorry, that can work better. In terms of reshoring, I think you're 100% right. Where I, Where I would disagree is it seems to me that America – does things really well certain things it's the very very low end of stuff where it has to be done here like you know laundry um you have you, you have to get your car washes you have to fill up your your gas station you have to go to the gas station you have to go to the grocery store there's no way you can offshore that stuff you know the walmart store has to be in your neighborhood like that has to be here so america is really good at efficient consumerism stuff the other place where america is really good is When was the last time you bought a phone that was designed by a non-American? When was the last time you used a computer that wasn't American software? When was the last time you got an MRI that wasn't designed by an American company? When was the last time you flew on a plane that wasn't designed in the Western world? When was the last time you did anything of high, high, super high tech that wasn't American? You don't. America is really strong at the very, very high end of manufacturing, design, innovation, and where we outsource, or historically have outsourced, is in the commoditization of clothing manufacturing, plastics that have to be built for the, you know, for the iPhones, the, the glass screens where you can go and find the cheapest labor. And the only reason it's cheaper is because the labor's cheaper. And when you add on the shipping and the tariffs and the hassle of the language and and offshoring and all that, it's a lot cheaper to do it. But what COVID showed us was, you're actually creating leverage in your supply chain, you're becoming super dependent. And there is a time when you're saving, you know, 70, 80% of your, of your costs by going offshore that it doesn't matter how much the rest of the hassle creates. It's worth it. But when you start getting down to the five, 10, 15% savings, but you still have to deal with all that hassle. Well, that's when you come back to onshoring. And this is where I get kind of worried about the three amigos meeting down in Mexico. The best way to onshore, if you're an American company, is to do it in Mexico, where they have labor costs that are basically one-tenth, but you don't have any tariffs, you don't have any cross-border issues. And America definitely needs NAFTA more than NAFTA needs America, in my mind. And as long as you have the North American market uh, consolidated, companies are going to go where it's best for them. And I think right now you're totally right that the trend is coming back. And what the jobs are going to look like is it's going to be – You know the the same way mcdonald's used to have 30 people cooking the hamburgers cooking the fries you know someone there with a timer and a stopwatch now it's just one button cook the fries there's another guy that cooks the burgers and you know mcdonald's i think i think there's a stat that they've dropped on average 50 percent of their workforce from the average store over 30 years ago due to automization but that hasn't led to a plethora of unemployment throughout the united states It's led to massive um employment It, it leads it lets people work in industries where they're best suited and best fit. And so I, I think the uh, future of America is bright, largely because of immigration, largely because, you know, you, you talk about America's population decline, which you're 100% right on. It, it's a problem. But we have this great asset that no other country on earth has. is We have a flood of people trying to come here, and they're usually young people. And to the degree they're young people, they're young people with kids and families. And so you look across the world. Europe has the same demographic problem. China has the demographic problem. Japan has it in spades. But none of those countries have immigration as a solution. So I, I am very bullish on America. And I also think that the the opportunities for jobs throughout the manufacturing cycle are going to be strong here. And I agree. We It would be great if we had leaders. We don't. It would be great if we had a Congress. We don't. It would be great if we had a president that cared. We don't. But we have natural advantages being a, on a continent surrounded by oceans nowhere near our enemies and a demography and immigration that allows us to rise above all the challenges we have which is including the lack of leadership in the government you know
2: uh, matt points out something which i think is uh, the nub of the problem uh, in other words uh, and by the way I, I understand we have the strongest defense in the world but we don't have hypersonic missiles And those hypersonic missiles means that uh, we don't have oceans separating us uh, against, uh, you know, China or Russia. And, uh, you know, the Russians can put up a hypersonic missile, with 15 nuclear warheads on it, and it can shoot that missile up, and we can't stop it. Number one and number two, those 15 warheads can go to 15 cities, so one missile can wipe out 15 cities in the United States, and we don't have anything to prevent it. So they they have leaped ahead of us in in uh, certain defense technologies. But what 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 Matt is describing is in in the late 19 in, in the early 1990s when the Soviet Union fell apart, you know it. It became possible to manufacture goods anywhere you wanted in the world. It became possible to get money anywhere you wanted it and, and to any place you wanted it in the world. So the net effect is we came with this new business model and this new business model basically says we will design the product and then we will ship the, the designs to the Southeast Asians who will produce that product and then they will ship the product back to us and we will sell it and that's exactly what's happened for the last 30 years so the net effect of it is we have lower cost products right but the same result of that of doing that uh, and, and we did it because by the way we we had the cheap labor number one but number two we also did not have to make the capital expenditures in the factories and therefore the cyclical swings in our economy would be less than the cyclical swings in those economies where the you know the, uh, the factories existed, so that was the second benefit we got. And the third benefit was we could take the cash that we're not using for you know uh, manufacturing these products and building these factories and buy back stock. So the result of that was certainly we have lower cost products. However, they now do have technological leads. Te- technological leads on us in certain critical sectors. They got the rare earths, we don't. They got the lithium, we don't. They got the, uh, you know, improved telecommunications systems, we don't. So, you know, it's not that, you know, we, we are on the front edge of these technological breakthroughs. You know, in many cases, we are not. And if you talk, take a look at, you know, an example of of using that capability, Apple, you know, has wonderful designs for iPhones, but they don't make them here to make them in China. And, and instead of wanting to move, you know, them out of China to the United States, they want to move them out of China to India. You know, so, so you know, the Tesla, you know, is, is building its, uh, you know, cars, you know, uh, in, increasingly in China. And, and that's the problem. The problem is when you do that, then the workers in the United States do work at McDonald's. They do work mm-hmm. uh, as bellboys at, at, at uh, you know, hotels. They're not working in manufacturing. Therefore, mm-hmm. the gap in income spreads dramatically. In other words, the Gini Index for the United States is one of the worst in the world in terms of income inequality. And it's because we're in consumer occupations. We're not in production occupations. So, yes, that's the the things... Matt's description is the way things went from 1990 to 2020. I don't think that's the way it's going to be from 2020 to 2050.
0: But you don't see the benefit in the fact that we don't have to pay $3,000 for our phones, because that's the estimated cost Tim Cook apparently told Donald Trump when Donald Trump was twisting his arm saying, hey, why don't you build your phones here? And he said, well, it costs cost $3,000 to sell the phones here. But the entire society is benefiting from optimization of resources we all benefit by having cheaper products and leaves more money in our wallet for other things by being able to outsource that which we can't do as effectively as other countries it's basic economics to outsource low low value production well i I, i'm going to come in in here matt
4: i i I, i i'm on the side of dick on this largely i mean there's a huge social and economic cost of what we've been doing for the past generation or two with all this outsourcing Um, we've hollowed out or hollowed out a lot of these communities throughout the Midwest. There's a social and economic cost, and we do have to create higher value jobs that pay very well. But it raises another question, which gets back to the demographics. We don't have enough people entering the labor force on an annual basis. We're down to 500,000 a year, I think it is, from two and a half million you know, a generation or so ago. And it also raises an additional question. We don't have the skill sets and we don't have sensible immigration policies. And we also probably, you know, complementing all of that, we need a proper education system to provide those kind of skills and technology so that, you know, the workers will be able to do all these kind of high, high end kind of jobs that America's going to need to grow its economy and 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 raise um, the standard of living. And, you know, when you raise the growth levels of the economy, then you can start talking about paying down debt. That's a problem. We have 1.9% growth or something Dick mentioned there earlier. We're just not growing fast enough is why we have all this debt as well.
2: Well, I, I, Paul, let me jump in with, with a simple example. Take a car ride through Gary, Indiana, and take a car ride through Beverly Hills. The person in Beverly Hills gets to buy that iPhone you know, at uh, you know, a slightly lower price. The person in Gary, Indiana doesn't have food, doesn't have a job, doesn't have a factory. I've never seen so many broken down buildings anywhere in my life than driving through Gary, Indiana. And that's the, re- that's the result of outsourcing everything to the high, high quality jobs to places outside the United States gary indiana that's the result if that's what we want because we want the person in beverly hills to pay a little bit less for their iphone i'm I'm not i'm not on board with that
1: one of the things that i think that we've we've um come to a conclusion this morning is that the problem is incredibly complex and even with some of the smartest people i know we have lots of different opinions and every and every conversation seems to open up a few more doors of, of reasons why it's complicated, um, so we can we can continue on this for a long, long time. And appreciate everybody being here. Um, but there's there's one there's one thing that we did want to bring up, uh, and it's a little bit of a mis- misdirect on this. Um, and we just touched on it last time because it just started to happen. Basically, it's FTX, the the crypto collapse. John, I, I want to push this to you and then and be able to bring in Dick and Matt uh, of say bees there's a lot of controversy here what the what the challenges are. But back in, in your day, you were I, I, I don't know if you I, I can't remember if you were an editor of Traders Magazine or were you just writing for Traders Magazine, but you had a legendary cover story. You interviewed Bernie Madoff in his heyday and and, and again, I guess we can't help but ask, are there similarities between what you saw happening with Bertie Madoff and his collapse uh, with Sam Bankman-Fried and the uh, FTX collapse?
4: Well, uh, first of all, Ira, don't demote me. I was the editor at Traders Magazine. It was a very okay. distinguished and August publication and just produced great stuff on the institutional trading markets. So it was a very fun time. Um, Bernie was an enigmatic and strange and solitary figure. We know all that. If there's one, I mean, you want, you know, a sharp and striking difference. Bernie never wore wore hoodies. I think Sam was always pictured wearing those hoodies. Bernie was the quintessential Wall Street tough in a sense, Um, always elegantly and immaculately immaculately dressed. I mean, but they, they came from two different backgrounds. Bernie was your classic in many sense you know queen's blue collar guy who grew up um working class his family uh, had many misfortunes financially uh, through their lives so i guess that drove bernie to succeed he was um quite a, a sharp-minded individual if we can believe what we read uh, whereas um sam uh, was raised in um a liberal a kind of a liberal Um, upper middle-class family on the West Coast um, by two college professor parents. Um, I mean, people have referred to Sam as the sort of the mini uh, Bernie because of the uh, scale of the losses that were reported, I think, 8 billion, whereas Bernie's was something in the region of 65 billion. Um, And I guess adjusted for inflation, those losses now would be a lot higher than the 65 billion. but uh, what what would be worth watching in terms of the current um disaster and fraud that's been reported on the sam bankman freed side is the recovery of those losses um where will that head i mean we're all in the last 24 hours 48 hours we've heard that uh, they may have come up at 5 billion already that you know uh may be recovered but we'll see where that goes to those unfortunate um clients who lost that money and in terms of bernie the numbers i've seen over the years are pretty pretty striking i mean the claims 80 to 90 percent or more of the claims were settled with clients which is not to excuse you know the um deeds and the fraud and the ponzi scheme that bernie did and what sam has been accused of sam's in a sense was as far as we know, um, a Ponzi scheme, but it raises the whole question of crypto, uh, Sam dealt in cryptocurrencies, Bernie, you know, took real cash, um, from, from a lot of, uh, people who should have known better, maybe they did know better, but they were unsuspecting in many cases, but it raised the whole issue of crypto being, you know, in the, um, center of this whole drama at the moment. And it's something we've looked at know, in audience Capital Conversations and, and Dick and Matt have spoken about and have, I'm sure, opinions
0: about. I, I'm never one to want to talk about someone's criminality, but <laughs> <laughs> to the extent... <laughs> you know, obviously innocent until proven guilty for Mr., Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried. But let's be clear, this is a guy... Bernie Madoff, who by and large, from what I understand, his clients were super, super high net worth. And to the extent they're in his country club, there's all these stories about people coming up to him and trying to invest in him, you know, being like, no, no, I, let's keep our friendship. And and he would wave his, you know, he he was really hard to invest with. And I'm not trying to psychoanalyze as much as that's exactly what I'm doing. But it seemed to me that that Bernie had some sort of degree of like, he knew he was a fraud, He knew he was a Ponzi scheme and he was trying to protect those closest to him from making the mistake of investing with him. And John's right. I think the total recovery on the estate was around 85 cents because at the end of the day, he was a classic Ponzi scheme and you can unwind a Ponzi scheme if you can follow the money. What Sam was doing was he was advertising on the Super Bowl. He was buying stadiums. He's going out after retail. He was pitching himself as an alternative to your FDIC insured bank. Give me your $100. Give me your $150. Boldness favors the brave. Like he was trying to be a Ponzi scheme to the entire world for every dollar of pocket change that you could get. And, you know, to the extent that there's a difference, it sure seems like Sam doesn't know maybe that he was a Ponzi schemer. Cause he seems to be out there. Even this morning, he published a Substack talking about how he's innocent. It was all just a, you know, it's abnormal. He had a traditionally sophisticated business that just happened to fail. And it's like, what are you talking about, man? You your 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 entire balance sheet was these fake tokens that you invented. You know, you sold one of them to yourself for a hundred dollars, and then you said, Oh, I've got this uh hundred billion dollar balance sheet. Well, just because you could create a billion tokens, sell one for a hundred dollars, doesn't mean you have a hundred billion dollars in the bank. And he doesn't seem to understand that. So it's it's kind of weird to me that that they're compared because Bernie was a traditional Ponzi schemer. His sons accused him, he confessed immediately, he knew exactly what he was doing, whereas Sam seems to be deluded by this idea that somehow he's legit. Yeah, no,
4: you're absolutely right there, uh, Matt. Um, yeah, he lives, it seems to be living in some kind of alt- alternative universe. I think in the case of Bernie, I. I've always felt that Bernie felt he was going to get away ultimately with his scheme. He was going to somehow re-engineer his way out of it. I mean, what brought him down, obviously, was the 2008 subprime crisis. And so he couldn't uh, make his investors good on withdrawals. And then, But the other question is, you know, the SEC and the regulators took so long to catch up with Bernie. And I I think they might have been slow to catch up in the beginning, at least uh, with Sam.
0: Yeah, I mean the 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 difference is Bernie hid himself within proper regulatory regimes. I mean, I think he was one of the co-founders of some of the of the Nasdaq, and he was on the boards of a lot of main, mainstream Wall Street entities, and he was so legit that when he had a whistleblower come after him and write exactly in a detailed format, this is how this guy's running his Ponzi scheme, the SEC looked at it and was like, eh, doesn't look like a Ponzi scheme to us on the surface. We're not going to scratch too hard. Whereas Sam Bankman-Fried you know, it, All it took was one pushing of that first domino, and then all of a sudden you see his balance sheet, and then all of a sudden you see the, the due diligence Sequoia did, and you're like, wait, this, this, is a, a com- this is a company that has all red flags. There's not white flags at all. There's no area of that company where you're like, well, at least they have good compliance, or, oh, at least they have a checking account. No, they did not have a checking account. They were laundering their money through their Alameda Research account. Like they they didn't even have a checking account. Like, how do you how do you invest in a company and you don't have a checking account in your own name and you're a legitimate company? I mean, it, it, it to me this is much more just the hype. He he caught a wave, he rode the wave all the way to shore, and as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you see who's naked, and it turns out this guy was entirely naked, and everyone around him was too, and the entire industry, and every boat that's attached to it, and everyone before and after him. You know, I, I think DCG is probably on 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 the ropes. It sure looks like the Vinkelvi, their group is on the ropes. It sure looks like Binance. You know, they, if you were to swap out the name Binance and FTX, you couldn't tell a difference between the articles because they're exactly the same. We have a very healthy balance sheet full of stuff. We're not going to tell you what it is because that would ruin our secret sauce. But we're, we're very rich. Trust us. Yeah, I'm just going to say that to Bernie,
4: of course, um, was the go-to guy in Washington. He ingratiated himself with regulators, lawmakers, even celebrities on some level. You know, they had some kind of naming rights at Met Stadium, at at City Field. What's not? It's called City Field now. Was Shea Stadium back then? Um. And and Sam did the same thing. He, you know, he had all these surrounded by all these celebrities, and he had all the allure and the attraction of success. And people, he, they were both of them were magnets and enigmatic in a very strange and bizarre way.
1: Dick, you've been uncustomarily quiet.
2: Well, about I'm kind of I'm kind of jealous of uh, you know Freed because. Uh, when my grandson my, and John knows this, uh, you know, when my grandson and a couple of his buddies, uh, you know, were playing this, you know, video game called Cryptocurrencies, you know, they created their own cryptocurrency and uh, they made, uh, you know, a few thousand bucks a piece. But that's all <laughs> <You know? laughs> this guy made hundreds of hundreds <laughs> of millions of dollars. Right. Uh, but I, I do own cryptocurrencies, which I always have to admit. Uh, and I, I don't believe that. Uh, they have found a useful function yet i think that uh, they're trying hard to find that useful function uh, in terms of the delivery of funds you know rapidly uh, you know without uh, disclosure and but but i think that um, you know, basically, they they are still uh, you know an investment uh, game, and 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 I, I still think it's, it's being done by young people playing video games, which which is called the cryptocurrency market, using you know the Japanese candlestick uh, method of trading them. Uh, I don't think that uh, as a result of what just happened, you know, that uh, a bunch of kids like my grandson and his buddies can create their own cryptocurrency and then walk away with a few thousand bucks and go buy, one kid bought himself a car and was very happy with the whole system. I I think that 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 era is now over and that uh, all the talk about regulating this industry, which has been nothing but talk since nobody's ever done anything, I think will will kind of crystallize, and we will we'll start to get some regulation to where cryptocurrencies now start to have some some base, at least in 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 uh, you know being uh, monitored uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. But I mean, again, the the bottom line is that uh, essentially, uh, I think. There is going to be an opportunity in cryptocurrency beyond just a, a speculative uh, mechanism, but I, and I own it for that own for that reason. But I, I don't, I don't have any faith in them at the moment.
3: Yeah, with that, Dick, I think the exciting thing is many times you know we talk interchangeably about crypto and blockchain, but they're actually two different things. Cryptos are the tokens that are used for the utilization of apps that sit on blockchains, and and. Just uh, this week, it was announced Avalanche, which is a layer one blockchain company, has entered into an agreement with Amazon Web Services because Amazon now understands the future of a lot of their deployment. The way that their technology is going to be used is going to be used on the blockchain. And so going back to some things you shared earlier about you know the importance of manufacturing, the types of jobs, the types of skills that we're going to have, um, we do have some bad players out there like Sam Bakeman-Fried who are doing things the wrong way. But on the other side of the token, I do think the blockchain is starting to work with some of these top technology companies that we have that are trying to start to move their infrastructure towards blockchain more because they see the benefits that it's going to have in the future. And I do think that's going to be an exciting development for us from an an economical standpoint of there's a lot of developers I know in the space that are moving from working for traditional software development companies they're getting on board to take their talent, skills, and innovation with blockchain companies that are starting to become well established. So I think that's another positive sign um, of things to come in the years ahead for the economy. Is the way that blockchain is going to be used and change our lives.
1: We unfortunately, and very sadly, need to bring this to conclusion. <laughs> There's a lot more topics uh, that we didn't get to, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to get you guys back again. Uh, it's always a, a wealth of information and enjoy, and the time goes by incredibly fast. But we like to close each uh, each of our episodes with, with a question, and, and the one that that I want to present to every each of you because there's so much that we didn't cover. We'll start with where we, we began. We'll start with you, Dick. Was there something that you wanted us to ask that we didn't?
2: Yeah, I, I uh, am really fascinated by the fact that the Federal Reserve has got negative equity of 1.1 trillion and is funding itself in the short-term uh, money markets as opposed to the traditional method of printing money and and. Uh, uh, I think that that is a, a, a total uh, disaster happening, and, and a critical issue that has to be looked at, and, and that is a subject that, that we didn't discuss, but but is really, uh, really close to my heart and my mind at the moment.
1: Well, we're going to put that down, and hopefully, that's a reason to come back and and join us again and and explore that, and it'll give you a couple of weeks to prepare. Okay. <laughs> so, hey, hey, Matt.
0: I, I mean, I would, I would say the question I think that I keep thinking about is what is the greatest threat to the global economy? And I, to me, I think a lot of people, but not necessarily mainstream people are looking at Japan and what they're doing with their yield curve. And they are holders of like 1.3 trillion, I think U S treasuries. And if they actually have to repatriate dollars and in, in order to finance government positions to control their currency, it could, it could really cause a hiccup in what the fed is trying to do and it could force qe faster than they think and i think that's uh, something that's on my radar that i'm looking for to be a negative indicator that the economy is about to go off the rails
4: john yeah um by the way the cover story i wrote for traders magazine my interview with bernie and peter and the others was the made mystery which was kind of prophetic prior it was a few years prior to the collapse um immigration, immigration reform, how we can have sensible immigration, bring people in with technology skills, vocational skills, um, intellectual skills. Uh, The system in America is totally broken and we need to start addressing it and and get it right this
1: time. Jason?
3: I think probably the end there, blockchain. Um, I I love the applications of what blockchain, I think, is going to bring in terms of innovation to so many industries. Richard Foster has often said, by the time we get to 2028, somewhere around 40% of the Fortune 500 companies may no longer exist, or or at least exist in the way that we know them today. Um, so it, it, as scary as things are, and we probably are headed toward a recession based on the, our expertise that we heard here today, I do think that it's going to be an, an evolutionary step into things that will be even better down the road for us in terms of the types of jobs that we'll be able to create um, and the types of things that technology will be able to help us um, at, just as we go through some of these uh, you know, these difficult steps in the short term of getting there.
1: Special thanks to Dick Beauvais, Matt Van Alstein, John Aiden Byrne for spending some time with us again. Definitely, if you want to hear more about this, you can hear about it weekly on the Odeon Capital Conversations podcast. Uh, please check it out. And while you're there, uh, while you're on listening to your podcast, check out Dig Life Deep. Listen to and you can listen to my segment. Uh, excellent interviews with John Aiden Byrne every week, which are not always based on financial, but a lot of provocative topics and interesting topics. Um, but you can also hear my segment, Future Shock 2.0. I want to thank everybody again for being part of Googleization Nation. Thank you again, everyone, for being here. And until next time. Don't let the shift hit your plans.